All right. Uh, Luke chapter 4, starting at verse 16. And this will begin a, um, probably for the rest of my time here, we'll look at uh, stories or narratives from the Gospels. So I know you guys have read through uh, or are currently reading through. Uh, maybe some of you are behind. Some of you need to play catch up. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts, I believe. So we're going to look at some stories from the Gospels, just highlighting a few uh, moments in the life and ministry of Jesus that I think are very important for our modern time and day. So look at uh, Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read... And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is, is not this Joseph's son? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this new day and opportunity to be under the authority, the hearing of your word. And I pray, O oh Lord, that you would open it up to us in a in a way that is real and uh, in a way that applies to our life and our various uh, stories that are here, our contexts that are here, we pray that you would uh, fill this place in this moment with your life, your joy, your grace, your presence. That we would not just hear a sermon um, or even hear a sermon and be excited about it, but that we would uh, go on to obey and apply these words to our daily life and that we would have a real encounter with you. Because you are the living God, a God as we just learned, a God of justice and mercy and grace, a God slow to anger, yet intention you are a God who judges sin. And we are so thankful today that we do not stand under condemnation, but through Christ we are free. We are free, and in this we rejoice today. So Lord, I pray that our hearts would be reverent before you, submissive before you, and that your will would be done here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to look at a section of the Gospel of Luke and uh, stories from the Gospels. And this is going to be essentially the ministry or the life of Jesus. The ministry or the life of Jesus, and really those two things sort of go together. So Jesus' earthly life uh, would involve his earthly ministry, and we will see uh, at the beginning of his ministry, in fact, just sort of skipping to the end here, we will see that not only did they receive his words initially, but in fact, it shows the rejection of the people toward this Messiah. So we're going to look at that in just a moment. But let us look at the ministry and the life of Jesus. I believe this is one neglected aspect of our redemption. What I mean by that is that often we say we are saved by uh, Jesus' death on the cross, and rightfully so. We are saved by his resurrection, and praise God, right? Rightfully so. But also we need to include that we are saved by the life of Christ. 
So not only his death and his resurrection, but without him being born, God with us, Emmanuel, being raised and living an earthly life, being not only God, but fully man as well, and paying the penalty for our sins, we would have no salvation today. So one neglected aspect here is just simply, I know it sounds very basic, but it is the life of Christ, his obedience to the perfect law of God. Him coming and actually making this a requirement, a condition for our salvation, that one man should fully obey the whole counsel of God. Now, this is good news because you can't obey the full counsel of God, not even for one full day. You can't fully obey the perfect law of God. On our best and most holy day or most holy moment, we are still so far from the perfection of this good and righteous law. So enter the answer to this dilemma, the life of Christ. The perfect life, a man uh, at the age of 30, up until about 33 years old, he, he dies. But in this, in this life of Christ and in this three-year ministry of Christ, we see the perfect walking out of the law of God embodied in the flesh. Something that no man had ever done and no man can ever do. But it is only through the life of Christ. So we are saved by his life his death, and his resurrection. Two aspects of this I want to point out to you, of his earthly ministry. Number one, his physical life. Of course, he is born. Um, the physical part of his ministry involving acts of mercy, um, reaching out to the poor, literally feeding people who are hungry, uh, reaching out to those who are oppressed, to those who are blind, to those who are sick and lame. Here, wherever Christ goes, the glory of healing follows him. Right, The will and heart of the Father embodied in the Son literally pours out physical healing wherever He goes. And we see that this is the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. A foreshadow, a, a preview, a teaser trailer, if you will, of the coming glory, of the restoration of all things. When there will be no such thing as cancer or sickness or, or mental illness or, or anything that plagues us today. Wherever Christ goes, he physically reaches out. He's not only concerned with the soul, the heart, right? But he's concerned with the physical needs of those around him. And I think what we have in churches is one church will swing this way to the physical needs. One church will neglect that and swing this way. Well, we're just going to preach the gospel because all that matters is the soul. In the life of Christ, we see a perfect balance of his ministry to the physical body and his ministry to the eternal soul. Christ is concerned about both. So we see this physical aspect of his ministry that is going to be pointed out in the description here in a moment. Secondly, we see a spiritual aspect of his ministry, and one probably we're most concerned with and probably most relates to us in this moment. Spiritual ministry involves the new birth, we are forgiven of our sins. We are spiritually set free, praise God. That we can be fully delivered, right? We can be set free from the bondage of sin and we can have peace with God through what Christ has done. Now, this spiritual aspect of his ministry was very misunderstood by many in first century Israel in the time of Jesus 
in the flesh walking on the earth. In fact, they were looking for a king, right? They were looking for the Messiah that would come as a conquering king to first and foremost take care of their physical issue. Not only with healing and and with reaching out to the poor, but elevating Israel back to prominence in terms of delivering them from Roman rule and oppression. This is why you see these many parts in the Gospels where they try to seize hold of Jesus. Crowds try to take hold of them and and force him. Be our king. Because we see here that you are walking in the ministry of the Messiah that we learn from the Old Testament. Surely you have come to, to relieve our oppression. They weren't necessarily concerned with the forgiveness of sins and spiritual deliverance, but they wanted relief from their current circumstance. So this spiritual aspect of the kingdom of God that has come, but not yet fully realized, it just it didn't, it didn't connect in their mind. They didn't understand that God would send a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant that would be slain and that would conquer the forces of evil through a perfect life and a death condemned on a cross that through weakness, the lamb of God would be slain, but yet we would see him transform into the great roaring lion that we sung about just a moment ago. They could not understand how our hero, our Messiah has come and in weakness, he tells us to love our enemies. No, we hate our enemies. We hate the Romans and we want relief. You're here to give us that, aren't you? And when they quickly realized that he was not going to fulfill that immediately, then they grew angry with him and the crowds became hostile. They loved Jesus when he was feeding them uh, fish and bread and, and relieving them of the immediate physical needs. But when Christ would say, not yet, the time is not yet. You must take on my yoke. You must suffer with me. You must love your enemies. And it was this kind of talk that initially just sort of allowed them to say, ah, no, I don't think this is for me. So it was misunderstood. But we must understand that we live still in this context of already, but not yet. You are in the kingdom of God right now. Amen? You are part of the kingdom of God. And how? You've been saved. You've had a new birth. You've been transformed. You are part of the family of God. You are part of the church of Jesus Christ. You are part of the bride of Christ. And how glorious is that? But yet you still fight with sin. Yet you still struggle. Yet you still battle sickness and financial difficulty and and emotional distress and, and all the things that come with this life in a broken and cursed world. The curse has not been fully eradicated, but through the new birth in your heart and mind, it is a preview of what is to come. And Christ is in the process of renewing you. He is restoring you. He is making all things new, but yet we still live in the tension of already here, but not yet fully realized. So we come to Luke chapter four and Christ enters this scene and this context. In chapter 4, at the beginning, we see the temptation of Jesus. Literally, the Holy Spirit drives him away. What an initiation into ministry. The Holy Spirit drives him into isolation, into the wilderness to be tried and tempted. Again, another requirement to secure our redemption. That he would enter into sort of Adam's flesh. And he would enter into not not a garden, but a wilderness. He would be tempted by the serpent, yet he would not fail. 
Aren't you glad for the life of Christ? That at every turn the enemy came to him and tried to show him something different and, and try to get him to deter the plan of redemption and give it up and change it. Christ would respond by saying, it is written. Over and over again, it is written. And his face was set toward the redemption of a people he dearly loved. A people that would reject him initially, but a heart still bursting with love for a people that he needed to save. Let's look at the description of the ministry of Christ. Here after his temptation, he begins his ministry, verse 14. He returns in, in the power of the Spirit, it says, to, to Galilee, and the report of Christ's fame is spreading throughout the different regions. And in verse 16, he comes back to Nazareth. Verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is a homecoming, the first public appearance of Christ in terms of his ministry. And as was his custom, here we see the custom of Christ not neglecting synagogue. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And in fact, if we're going off of our verses here, Isaiah 61, the first few verses of Isaiah 61, he reads. And this is what he's reading. Think of this as a description of the life and ministry of Jesus that will follow. Verse 18, he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. First, verse 18, he is proclaiming good news. Good news. Now, gospel preachers, ministers, not just people who stand up here, but witnesses who will share this news with neighbors and friends and relatives. I want you to first note this, that you carry good news. Good news. Not some message of doom and gloom. It's not to be proclaimed with some type of bitterness or anger. I've seen these street preachers with signs that literally mock certain crowds with, with language that should never come out of a Christian's mouth, that would demean people that are made in the image of God. This is not to be of a true minister of Christ. We have good news, good news, and we could tell it with great excitement, with great joy, and with great passion. I've got good news for you. There is freedom to be found in Christ. There is salvation to be found in him. I've got good news for you. It's not just coming in heaven, but here and now you can start a relationship with Christ that is full of life and joy right now. Do you still believe that? That on this side of heaven, you have something to gain by following Christ. You're not just awaiting some great restoration and oh, praise God, that's great news. But here and now, he abides with you and you with him in the power of the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are invited into the life of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the great delight that that is. You walk in this reality. And we forget this, don't we? We come to church every Sunday, it becomes a cycle, it becomes a rut, a routine. And we sing these songs up here, we, we, we watch the words, and it's just kind of like we're going through the motions, right? 
And we just sometimes don't allow these words or the songs to grip our heart, to truly push away the stress of life, the stress of the day for a moment and connect with your heavenly father and allow the Holy Spirit to work and transform. But we go through the rut, we sing, we go back home, we come back, we do it again. But I just want to remind you that you are part of a lively kingdom, one full of life and victory. You're already on the victorious side. Christ has already secured your victory. You are seated with him right now in heavenly places as good as done. Christ is yours and you, you are, are his. Do we understand this today? I'm here to give you good news about this. So one aspect of Christ's ministry to the woman found in adultery, to the, to the woman brought to the well, to those that were discarded, those that were too sinful to be redeemed, those forgotten by the religious structure and society, Christ was attracted to them. Wasn't he? He says to the woman at the well, I've got water that if you drink, you will never be thirsty again. To the woman found in the very act of sin, he, he reaches up and picks her up and gives her back her dignity, her value as a woman made in the image of God. And he invites her into his family. He eats with sinners and the religious elite of the day point their finger at him and say, how dare he? But Christ is a friend to sinners. He is full of good news for those who are oppressed. For those who are beaten and discarded and forgotten, Christ is for you. So that's an aspect of his ministry. Another aspect of his ministry is freedom, liberty. Look at verse 18, second part of 18. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind. Again, to set at liberty. This must be very important in the ministry of Jesus. Those who are oppressed. I just started uh, my classes here a couple of weeks ago at, at seminary, and one of the professors said something that really sort of challenged me a bit, but he said that if there was one thing you, can, you could pinpoint in the ministry of Jesus, what would it be? Jesus is described as fill in the blank. And, you know, I'm thinking Savior, Redeemer, you know, I don't know, Shepherd, King, take your pick, Priest. He says Jesus was fundamentally... An exorcist. A man that came to deliver people from demonic oppression. Now I know this kind of talk gets, gets us in the weird category, right? And sometimes we stay away from it. But I'm telling you, just as God is real and powerful, there is an enemy and an adversary of your soul. You live in a very spiritual reality, whether you want to acknowledge it or not. Yes, ordinary life, flesh and blood, but, but unseen, there is this still great raging war of good versus evil. There is still demonic forces that trouble our life and trouble our world. And still demonic possession and oppression is still very much a real thing and a reality that happens in our world. And here Christ comes to set at liberty those who are Oppressed, Those who not only are possessed or oppressed by demonic oppression, but in general, Christ comes to set us free. Amen? Christ comes to deliver us, not only 
Now, hear me when I say this. Not only does he deliver us from the penalty of sin in terms of forgiveness, but he has come to deliver us from the power of sin as well. We have a gospel that is a full and whole gospel, one that does not just let us off the hook and justify us and say, all right, you're good to go. I'll see you in heaven someday and leave us in our sins or leave us in our addictions or leave us in the things that bind us and hold us to this worldly life. But he has come to forgive us and then also deliver us from the oppression. We need to get back to this facet of gospel proclamation that there is a real power in the life of Christ here and now to deliver people here and now in 2021 from demonic oppression, from demonic possession, from religious strongholds, from strongholds in the world, from from anxiety, from stress, from whatever the case may be. Christ has the power to set you free. This is the ministry and the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel preached by Peter and Paul and written in the letters. This is the gospel that pervades church history. This is the gospel that propels men and women to drop everything familiar and launch out into a foreign land and and plant their flag somewhere in isolation and say, yes, I believe in the risen son of God who is king of kings and Lord of lords. The lamb that was slain has become the lion of the tribe of Judah and he is king. He is conqueror. He is great high priest. He is the dearest friend to the outcast and he has the power to set you free. But I have this going on. It doesn't matter. What about this sin? And what about this? I keep doing over and over. It doesn't matter. Christ can set you free. Praise God for this. I wouldn't even be a preacher if I didn't believe this. If this didn't happen to me, if this wasn't my experience, a young man bound by pride and lust and, and just going down a, a path of, of destruction. And one day Christ came to me and just literally changed everything. I mean, we, we've got the scenes from uh, the show. You guys have watched The Chosen, right? That phrase, this changes everything. I mean, these people leave their, their former occupations to follow this Messiah. He changes everything. I've been set free and I must, I must now. I feel compelled to share it with others. Remember this, our gospel still includes one of deliverance from not only the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. Secondly, I want you to see this in verse, look at verse 20 and 21. I'm watching my timer. I'm getting close. All right, we see Jesus says, I'm getting a little excited today. You guys have to roll with me. Jesus says in verse 20, he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus here makes himself the key to unlocking the entirety of scripture. We see this theme run throughout scripture, especially in the New Testament where Jesus will say things like, these scriptures testify of me. On the road to Emmaus, he begins to open their eyes. He starts at the the law and the prophets and he goes on through the Old Testament showing how he is the grand hero and star 
of this narrative, the Bible that we have. So I want you to understand, to read and study and look at the Bible through the Jesus lens. He is the interpretive key to the Bible, the Jesus hermeneutic, if we will. Right, The way to understand scripture is to see that Christ is at the center of it. Not you. right? We're included. We're brought into the family of God. But first and foremost, scripture is about the glory of God through this son, Jesus Christ. So it's very important to help us understand scripture. Also, let's keep reading just for a moment. Look at the next part. This is very important, and I think I'll close here. Verse 22. 22 gives us their response to Jesus. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? So what's the initial response here? They spoke well of him. Oh, man. Never a man speaks like this man. Never have heard anything like this before. It's amazing. And they're, they're amening. They're agreeing. They're excited. They, they hear of the words this man is saying. And, and they've, never, they've never been so captivated before by a speaker in synagogue. Surely that day, synagogue was different. The Son of God speaks and everyone listens. And they receive it initially. They speak well of him. They marvel at his words. And then they say, well, isn't this just Joseph's son? Again, he's in his hometown. So he's got some neighbors, some community. You ever gone back to your hometown after being sort of years away? And it's kind of a weird, awkward thing, right? Here Christ goes back and they're saying, wait a minute, I know this guy. Isn't this this the carpenter's son? How is he expounding scripture in this way? Now that's the initial response we all give to the word of God. Now my last point is this. Our response to God's word is serious. Serious. What I mean by that is your response to God's word, not just somber and serious, but it is a big deal how we respond to God's word. If we allow it to sink a little further than our ears, we allow it to get into our mind and our heart and our actions and our will, we apply it to our life, whether it's easy or hard, Because there are many hard passages of scripture that go countercultural to today's norms. Will we be followers of Christ and apply those parts? Or will we shrink back? Will we amen the preacher initially and say, wow, great sermon. Great job. I was glad I could be there today. And then we walk out of this place and we go about our day and our life and the seeds just sort of fall. And they don't stick. They don't stay. Nothing remains. There's no power of what I'm saying, or more importantly, of what Christ is saying to you now, that you let transform your life. That you let captivate your attention, your heart, and you mull over it, and you meditate on it. You take it to prayer. How, O Lord, am I to apply this? So do we let things get deeper? How do we respond to God's word? Because here... Christ will give us, the, give us the response, or scripture here will give us the response. He says, this is what Jesus says after this. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What have we heard you did at uh, Capernaum do here in our hometown as well? We want you to do all those great miracles. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, none of them, but only one in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Now, Jesus is saying something profound. God, when he came through the prophets, skipped over you, Israel. Now, that's not a popular point. Jesus is confronting the crowd, the people, and saying, essentially, because of your rejection of his word and the Messiah, God has skipped over you, and he's gone after the Gentiles. He's opening the door wide for those who will hear God's word and not just say, oh, swell job, but those who will hear God's word and do them. Isn't that what Jesus said? The wise man hears the words of God and does them. This is he who builds his house on a rock, not he who hears and doesn't obey. So this Jesus will say, and of course, what's the response of the crowd to this? Anger. Wait a minute. You did great and all, but now it's time to throw you out. I don't think he got an invitation back. So they try literally to kill him. They take him to a cliff and in in a mob mentality try to throw him over the cliff. Essentially another form of stoning that was done by a mob to push a man off a cliff. But verse 30, passing through their mist, he went away. Jesus had an amazing ability to evade this kind of thing. So I ask you this, and I say to you, as we close, what's your response to God's word? What's your response to God's word? Is it initial agreement? Yes, great job. Or do you let it sink in your heart? Do you let the life and ministry of Christ matter to you today? I'll close with the words from J.C. Ryle, an old Anglican bishop from the 1800s says it very well. It is vain to conceal from ourselves that there are thousands of persons in Christian churches in little better state of mind than our Lord's hearers at Nazareth. There are thousands who listen regularly to the preaching of the gospel and admire it. They do not dispute the truth of what they hear. They even feel a kind of intellectual pleasure in hearing a good and powerful sermon. But their religion never goes beyond this point. Their sermon hearing does not prevent them living a life of thoughtlessness, worldliness, and sin. Let us often examine ourselves on this important point. Let us see what practical effect is produced on our hearts and lives by the preaching which we profess to like. Does it lead us to true repentance toward God and lively faith towards our Lord? Does it excite us to weekly efforts to cease from sin and to resist the devil? These are the fruits which sermons ought to produce if they are really doing us any good. Without such fruit, a mere barren admiration is utterly worthless. It is no proof of grace. It will save no soul. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for this group of people. I thank you for this body of believers. And as I pray, I am praying that your Holy Spirit, O Lord, would do the work in the hearts and minds of your people that is needed in this very moment.
You see where each person is at in their walk with you, their, their journey with you, their pursuit of godliness. And I pray for them. I pray for them in this way, that you would propel them forward to greater conformity to Christ and that they would have greater and greater manifestations of the Holy Spirit's power and working in their life, in them, and through them to others. Lord, when you speak, when you visit, when you come, whether it's through your preached word or in prayer, you come to make a difference. Let us not be apathetic or indifferent. There is no true and real response in that. But let us respond with an amen from our lips and an amen from our heart and our life. Oh, Father, transform us, change us, shape us in grace, shape us in your holy love. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray your blessing on this congregation in Christ's name. Amen. Let's worship him as they sing.